Well, very good. So yesterday we got to go through history, and I apologize. The history took longer than I had hoped it would because I wanted to get into some of the Bible discussions of uh, what they used. There's a lot of different angles you could take with the Mormons, and the one that is obviously for us most profitable, the one that we want to be able to to, uh, stand right on is to be able to go to the Scriptures and, and show what they believe is not found in the Scriptures and what we believe is found in the Scriptures. And um, So hopefully we'll be able to do that uh, with these subjects as we go through. <clears throat> we uh, alluded to some of the Mormon beliefs yesterday. Uh, probably one of the most uh, egregious, in my opinion, is the view of God. Uh, it is such a demeaning view of God. As you go through this, you'll see that it is. Uh, it really takes God off of his throne. Now, it gives lip service to the idea of God on his throne, but really uh, it makes him nothing more than an exalted man, and there is some difference between them as to whether or not God is even still progressing in his authority, in his power, in his wisdom. Very many of them do believe that, although more recently uh, they tend to distance themselves from that idea and, and pretty well say he's attained. However, they are going to assert that uh, he is not the only God. There are many. In fact, there is, a, a, according to one of the apostles, we'll look at a quote here in a moment, uh, just an enormous number. And uh, I think we'll calculate trillions. At least. If all the average everyday Mormons know of this doctrine that he becomes God. Right. This is not a this is to say they don't try to hide it, they don't if they come knock on your door, this is not something that they're going to highlight. Okay. Okay. This is something that they're going to try to push to the side. Well, the reason that it's such a mainstream idea for them is because it is it is a key part of their salvation. It is a key part of the goal. The goal is not only did God once progress to become a God, but so can you. And that's why I say these things that we're talking about, these are not things that they can push to the side and still be anything like Mormons because they would deny their very hope. And that's why when you look at that young elder and you say, so I understand that you believe that there are more than one God, that there are many gods. They're not going to be eager to talk about that, that's not, going to be, that's not why they're there. They're not there to talk to you about that. They're there to talk to you about things that are going to pull you into the Mormon doctrine. They're there to talk about the, the milk, not the meat. That, no question about it. No question about it. So, but they will not deny that they believe that. I have, you know, on several occasions, if you're going to study with them, I think it's only polite to listen to what they've got to say. Listen to it objectively. I mean, you, you've heard it before, you know something about it, but be polite enough to listen. But then, may I ask a few questions? I, I would like to discuss some of these things that I've heard are fundamental to Mormonism, and, and this one is particularly upsetting to me. I understand that you believe that there are more than one God. I, I can't find that in my Bible. Can you show me? And they'll be glad to try, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. They believe, and these, and these doctrines are just really... They become more and more ludicrous as you go through, but they believe that he has a physical body, not just a physical body of flesh and bone, but a physical body of flesh and bone the same proportion 
as us, somewhere between me and Pat, probably, more average. But, uh, but they do believe that he has a physical body, and that's just such a foreign idea to us. Uh, they also, again, believe that he was once a man, but that he has progressed by applying himself to the eternal truths. He's not the first God. He's not by any means the last. He's just one among very, very many. What they will focus on, though, is they'll say, he is the only God with whom we have to do. Have you ever heard him say something like that? But, well, he's the only God with whom we have to do. Well, we're going to show how that just is not supportable from the Scriptures. Uh, he did not create the universe from nothing. Now, this is one that they might be less um, aware of themselves. They will believe this, but uh, they won't be quite as prepared to perhaps defend this. But their scholars are very insistent on this, and they've spent a lot of time in the last uh, ten years to defend this position. All right, so the plurality of God. Let's just go ahead and get the position documented out there. And this is the, the quote that I was referring to earlier. What did you do with your stick, by the way? I like that. Uh, I like that, yeah. yeah. So you notice, notice the, uh, the number. If we, could, if we should take a million worlds like this one and number the particles on the world and those worlds, we would have more gods than particles on those worlds. Now that's a pretty astronomical number, isn't it? So that, just the sheer magnitude of that statement is just mind-boggling. But, so they have subscribed to this, the, the universe is just really, 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 really enormous. And by the way, those gods exist in this universe. And if you go on to become a god, you're going to become a god in this universe with your own domain, your own planet. That's, that's the goal. Now, that goal isn't for us. You know, I mentioned last night from a salvation standpoint, I'm a son of perdition. You guys are going to what's going to be called the terrestrial kingdom of heaven. They're going to the celestial kingdom. And it has three levels. The highest of those allows them to go on to become gods. <clears throat> we'll talk more about that later. All right, so where do they get that from? Well, they will claim to you that it's, that it's in the Bible. And there have been lots and lots of discourses on this uh, by a woman that's and Joseph Smith kicked it off uh, in his King Follette discourse. There was a, uh, a fellow by the name of King Follette who got uh, crushed uh, while digging a well. And at his funeral, he preached a great dissertation on how there are many, many, many gods. We'll see a little excerpt from it here in a moment. So turn on over to uh, Psalm chapter 82. All right, Psalm 82. And, and, and let's just take a moment to read through here because wow this this sounds like this sounds like the old uh, the idea you know the Greeks would have Romans that uh, you know there's a council of gods in fact just incidentally I heard on national public radio about six or eight months ago a guy quote from this to show that the Hebrews were just like the nations around them they believed in a council of gods well Let's read this passage. <clears throat> God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. And in fact, why don't, why don't one of you guys read? Uh, would you read? Just read the whole passage for us, Dennis. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice in the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Flee them from the hand, or free them rather, from the hand of the wicked. 
They do not know, nor do they understand it. They walk above in the darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said you were God. All and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Okay. Now rise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, uh, Jesus himself quotes or refers back to this passage over in John chapter 10. Uh, let's go over there and look for just a moment. This is one of the questions I asked on homework Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> so there's a little bit of overlap here. Well, you know, it is interesting, just to make a real quick statement, that it does seem that cults do have the tendency to attack the deity either of Christ or of God or both. It's like Satan, one of his favorite themes is he likes to take God off the throne. And that's what these guys do. And, of course, the JWs really do that with Jesus. Um, all right, so uh, it is 10.34, John 10.34. And, uh, Dan, would you read it for us? Jesus answered them, Is this not written in your law? I said you are God. Okay, in verse 35. If he calls him God to whom the word of, of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, Continue. You say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blasphemy, because I said I am the Son of God. Okay, so if you're not familiar with this passage, you might draw a conclusion. Hey, this is talking about people, because what's their assertion? There are many gods, and guess what? You can become one if you'll join us and, and, and obey celestial law. Okay? This seems to maybe prove that, that there are, sure enough, many gods. Um, and, and Jesus seems to be saying the same thing, you know, here, that there are many gods. Before we dissect the passage, well, one of the fundamentals of hermeneutics is we want to understand that there are passages that are more clear on the subject. We should not understand these to be in contradiction to those. So, I will admit readily that this, if this is a passage that is talking about a council of gods, just like the pagans would have had, uh, if this is talking about there being many gods, this is a very unusual scripture. It would have to be unusual because there's none, there's no others really like it, uh, that, that talk about this council. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 44. Um, Isaiah, is, just does a marvelous job dealing with idolatry. And he's going to deal with these potential other gods. It's as if God is in, you know, in the Jewish mind at that time, God is in competition with these other gods for their loyalty. And Isaiah is making it very clear that a competition would require at least two parties. Those other parties don't exist. There is no competition, and that's the thrust of what he's saying in some of these passages. Um, 44, verse 6, if you present this verse to a Mormon, they haven't answered. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord God of, of the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. Now, that seems pretty conclusive. Can you think of a way that they might take that to fit their doctrine? I alluded to it just a little bit earlier. What might they say to get out of that path? Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. He is the God with whom we have to do with, but that doesn't mean there are no other gods. 
Okay, I am beautiful, absolutely. I am the first, I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Now look down at verse 8. Do not fear or be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Now think about the implications of that. If there are many gods, but he's the only one with whom we have to do, wouldn't he know about the other gods? Well, it says here, he don't know about them. Well, if he don't know about them, how can we? The point is, there are no other gods. Again, that concept of, you know, in the Jewish mind, there were, as is talked about here in idolatry, there are these other gods that they have, that, that have struggled, uh, or rather that, they have allowed to take some of their affection and attention, but he's saying they don't exist. They're, they're not, not there at all. Okay. Now, that doesn't tell us what this passage means, but it ought to bound what it does not mean. We should not understand this passage. I mean, that was pretty clear. God knows all things. He is, a, after all, God, and he doesn't know about God, other gods. So they don't exist. So what could this possibly mean? <clears throat> well, do you, does anybody know cheating? <laughs> uh, because I think I may have mentioned this passage to you. I don't know because it's one of their favorites. Um, can you look, just look at, just take a moment quietly and look at the passage and kind of just start soaking up some of the points in there. I'm going to, I'm going to draw your word to, your attention to, to uh, the word judges. Yeah. You got to sit down there and listen to this. Uh, and it shows that Aaron would be like God to me, we might say. That's right. I forgot I had all that information. So in John 10, I think it's talking about the ones that were judges in the children of Israel. He said they stood in the place of God and made judgments in the place of God. They were called God in that sense. That's exactly right. The word Elohim here means mighty ones. Now, it is true that this word is used of God. Uh, but here, who, just look at the context. God stands in the, in the congregation of the mighty. Okay, so that, that's going to lend some credence to the idea that these are mighty ones. Okay, He judges among the gods, or these Elohim, these great ones, mighty ones. How long will you judge unjustly? So whoever they are, they are judges at least. They are at least judges. Now who, who are they judging among? Let's notice that. And show partiality to the wicked. Defend the, the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. Okay? So just from, you know, we're not trying to make a huge point here, but just from reading that, what does it sound like it's talking about? It's talking about people, men who were appointed to be judges. Now, uh, look over again at uh, John chapter uh, 10, and I think there's further uh, evidence, and we'll come back to Psalm 82 here in just a moment, uh, but there's further evidence for that over here in John 10 because of who Jesus applies it to. Now, see, bear in mind, who, who does the Mormon say this is? This is these other gods. Who, by the way, do we have to do with them? We don't have to do them. They've already asserted that we don't have to do If these are other gods, we don't have to do with them. But over here, Jesus identifies exactly who these other gods are, who these Elohim, these great ones, or these judges, who they are. 
if he, verse 35, called them gods to whom the word of God came. And the scripture cannot be broken. So who, who could this possibly be other than those to whom the law was given? It would have to be judges among the Israelites. Okay, so I mean, I'm not the apologist that, that Pat is, but to me that's pretty, that's pointing me pretty closely to who, who it is that's in view here. The language of what God's telling them to do does not fit at all with what they would have these other gods doing. Those other gods wouldn't be judging among the widows and the fatherless of the people of Israel. They wouldn't have any dominion there. So this has got to be talking about those elephants, those judges that would be among the Israelites. Yes, sir? In verse 2 of the 8th Psalm, would one ever contend that these judges, excuse me, that these gods would completely, those gods, if they were other Mormon gods, would have to have been born on another earth. They would have had to have obeyed the, the eternal laws of good. They would have had to become faithful Mormons in those other earths. That's exactly the language that they use as radical itself. They would have had to have obeyed celestial law. They would have had to have had their marriage sealed in the temple. They would have had to have gone to the celestial kingdom of heaven. They would have been shown themselves uh, faithful there. Uh, so the answer, in fact, even before that, in what's called the first estate, before they would have been born in, physically into their other world, they would have had to have been loyal to God at a time of crisis when there was war in heaven, because it all repeats itself over and over. So the answer to the question is highly unlikely that in their theology, in their mind, if they really believe that, this passage teaches that, that these gods would be judging unrighteously because they have progressed so, so far beyond us at that point. So that's a good point. Well, we can never imagine the gods that we have to judge unrighteously. That's right. That's right. That's a good point. It is. So it's clear in verse 7 here, it, it's true that these men are, they are mighty. In what sense? Well, they are appointed as leaders and judges among God's people. God expects what from them? to do justice and to be merciful, to be like him. But notice he says, you are children of the Most High. In their theology, they would have to be offspring of Elohim, of our God, which would make them immediately in this domain. And I'm not arguing they're right about that, but they, they can't sustain their beliefs from this passage. Verse 7, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Their gods aren't going to be dying like men. So here's the key point. This is a good place to point it out. When you show a Mormon from the Bible that it does not support Mormonism, do not think you've won. Because he's not really counting on the Bible to teach Mormonism. He, he probably, he, when you brought him to this passage, he probably hadn't thought deeply about it. He probably did think it taught it. But now that you've shown him it doesn't and that it's not consistent with the Bible, all you have done really is confirmed his suspicion in the Bible. Because, as we're going to see a bit later on, his view of, of authority in the Scriptures, that's one of the challenges in dealing with him versus the Seventh-day Adventist, is 
He's slippery. He is very slippery. Whereas the Seventh-day Adventist at least has a very solid belief that the Bible is the Word of God. This Mormon can shed that like skin and just keep right on going. He's got prophet. He's got modern revelation. So don't be discouraged when that happens or if he seems undaunted. I will take just a brief moment to do something. Um, did I, is, am I Book of Mormon in that back there? This, I mean, I've got this in my notes, that blue one right there. If you don't mind, I'll take those. Um, I don't necessarily encourage this a lot, but this is one point where, again, what, what we said last night comes into play. Because of the advent of the Internet and, and this vast amount of information out there, very often there's already some cracks where it used to be that was not the case. Uh, this is a good opportunity, you know, it's got a mark here, uh, to go to, you know, to show them, I don't believe the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, but it doesn't teach what you're saying either. In Alma chapter 11, um, there's a discussion between a Zizram and an Amulek. Now, Amulek's a good man, godly, inspired. Zizram's not. Zizram is tempting him much like Christ was tempted. It's one of those situations. Zizram says unto him, verse 26, Thou sayest there is a true and living God. Amulek said, Yea, there is a true and living God. And Zedram said, Is there more than one God? Book of Mormon. And he answered, No. And just in case there's any question about whether he has the authority to say that, now Zedram says unto him, How knowest thou these things? And the angel said, And he said unto him, An angel hath made them known unto me. Or well, Book Mormon, that if the goal is to get him to question, which it really is, not destroy faith in God, but to get him to open up his mind. That right there can, it, it can be disturbing to them that you use a passage. Now, it will alarm them. You may or may not want to do it, uh, but it will alarm them the fact that you're not casual anymore, that you've studied a little bit. But, uh, all right. So that's probably one of their best uh, passages right there. And, I, and again, I'm, I wish I were Pat. I could do better with that. Here's another one. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 11. And you can kind of see what they're doing is they're preying on the lack of Bible knowledge. You know, at one point in time they said they were uh, converting a large Baptist church a week. Uh, and and the, that was true. And the fact is because, you know, many denominations don't teach Bible study or at least don't practice it. Uh, and they're weak. They're, they're, they were prey, uh, easy prey for this sort of thing. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. Uh, Mr. Greg, would you read that for us? 11, yeah, 11, 7. Uh, or Gen- yeah, Genesis 11, 7. 11, verse 7. Tell them to let us up. That's it. Okay, very good. Now this is a case in Mormons, just like their founding fathers, if they get in a pinch, they're not necessarily bound to be overly scrupulous. So although most of them are sincere, you know, they don't they're not bound, I think, as conscious bound as we are sometimes. Uh, what they will do here is they will set up a straw man. Very effective technique in debating. And they will try to make you think you believe something you don't. For example, they want you to believe that there are not, that, that what the Trinity means 
And what you believe is that there are not three distinct persons in the Trinity. And they will they get really snide about this. They may say, you know, for example, uh, well, we'll talk about it in a minute, but they'll they try to make you believe that. We don't, we don't believe that. We believe there are three distinct persons, as the Scripture teaches. And, and, and the very passages they're going to try to use against us teach that, but that they form one God. Now, what they believe is that there are three distinct gods right here. Not, that they, not, not just that they are three distinct individuals that are one God. They are three distinct gods. So, and they, so the plural use of us here then has to mean to them that there are, there are many gods. And there are at least three. Although, if you weren't successful with Psalm 82, here they're going to say that's a council of gods. You see what I'm saying? They just keep the water muddier and muddier. So, at any rate, the, the plural use of us here, uh, they see as proof that there are more than one God. Well, we know that by John 1, 1, that at creation, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, at the creation, uh, it was not just God the Father. The Holy Spirit was there. Jesus was there. We know that. So we're not daunted by this whole thing. They, they've taken it to mean that, but it clearly doesn't, does not mean that because, again, that would be a contradiction to Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 and 8, and also, just flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the, the Shema, as it's sometimes referred to, and, and Jesus uh, certainly used this same expression uh, of the, of the uh, belief of the, of the God-fearing Jew toward God. Verse 4. Pat, would you, would you read that for us? Just order. Yeah, just the... Here are the Lord our God one Lord. Okay? There's, he's one. So, we couldn't, I mean, that's pretty clear. We can't understand the us here to mean something that would con- conflict with Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. So the us there, we understand, because we have faith in the scriptures, to mean that this is Jesus, the, the Spirit, and God the Father. They're working together. Alright, we'll keep moving. Because there's a lot to cover. Matthew 3, and nothing else, you'll know their passages. You'll know what they like to use. Uh, again, here, the Mormons in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Uh, Mr. Davis, if you want to read that one for us, that'd be good. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Okay, they like to use this verse to attack that straw man that we were talking about. What they're going to say here is, so what you believe is there's one God, right? Mm-hmm, I believe there's one God. Well, he must be a ventriloquist because he's, and he's talking to himself because, if, you know, here's, here's God, Jesus, and God the Father, which is consistent with their belief, talking to one another, and the Spirit's here in the form of, uh, you know, in the form of the dove. So that doesn't that jive. What they're trying to make you think you believe something you don't believe. You believe three distinct persons, just one God. Right, exactly. Exactly. That's right. And they do have, I don't, they would have to have trouble with these verses, I would think. 
You probably know how to answer them. I don't know that I do. You won't go there. Um, so at any rate, uh, basically this teaches what we believe. They just misunderstand or try to misrepresent what we believe. Uh, and we we are going to have to be, you have to be consistent here, or not consistent, but persistent to keep emphasizing that this passage could not be interpreted to conflict with clear other passages that we've already looked at. And we haven't looked at them all by any stretch of the mind. That makes it very clear that uh, there is one God. Alright, the same thing here in Genesis 11. Uh, no, I'm sorry, we already looked at that. Same thing in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56. The same argument basically used here. This is when Stephen... Uh, was stoned, and he looked into heaven, saw the vision of God the Father. At his right hand was Jesus. Well, they say that clearly there are two gods because they're shown right there. But we understand that that was God the Father and Jesus, part of one God. And by the way, that is something that they truly do misunderstand sometimes. I've seen some of them that I think they generally sincerely believe that that's what we believe. All right. <clears throat> Now let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5. Uh, they're going to use this passage because it plainly says there are many gods. How in the world could that not be a, a positive affirmation of what they believe? <clears throat> Jeff, you want to read that for us? Go ahead and read, uh, yeah, just read verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords. Okay, so they won't, obviously it does use the word so-called, might cringe a little bit at that, but it's a positive assertion here, as there are, there are many gods and many lords. Okay, now we can take them back to verse 4 and show, and don't think they'll give up at this by any stretch of the line, but we can take them back to verse 4 and show them, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, by the way, there's a strong clue as to what's in view here. Remember, they're not arguing that idols are the other gods. They're arguing that there are other legitimate gods. But we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other god but one. Now, can you think of how they would get around that? Because remember, they brought you here. They thought about this. They probably run into this one before, perhaps. Exactly. In fact, this is that's right. And this is the passage that they use, verse six, to get to get that wording. Yet for us, for us, there is one God, the Father, and of whom, and He's our Father. Remember, He is our spiritual Father and physical Father, of whom are all things. And we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, whom they see as another God, through whom are all things, and uh, through him we live. Okay, so now you see. By, so yeah, they're ready for you. They think they've got you at that point. But context will not allow that at all. So uh, they, they just got to deal with context. So who is in view here? Well, verse 4 already told us that this is idol gods. And verse 7 seals the deal, in my opinion. However, there is not everyone the knowledge. Now, what knowledge? The knowledge of this one God. For some, with consciousness of the idol, eat, uh, or rather, until now eat, it is a thing offered, uh, as a thing offered to the idol. And their conscience being, being weak is defiled. 
So what is in view, if you read the whole context, and verse 8 makes it particularly clear, 7 makes it particularly clear, that uh, the gods in view here, these so-called gods, these other gods that they really are, they're out there, people worship them, they believe in them, but they're not real, they're not. And again, when maybe they've already drawn that conclusion about this passage already, and they're just using it somewhat unscrupulously to try to sway you in your belief, and they, because it says that it has that positive affirmation that there are more than one God. But again, if, even if this is the first time they've ever seen that, and you convince them right then and there, you know, I've been looking at that scripture all right, I need to look at it better. You have not won. They, they're not depending on this scripture to support that belief. Again, when we looked at what the Apostle Orson Pratt said a few, few uh, slides back, that is more authoritative to them than what we just read. So just bear that in mind. That's one of the things that makes it very frustrating to study with them. Any thoughts? Anything I overlooked? Yes, sir. Is that their stand? Is that their that also apart from Jesus? The man Jesus. Why do they call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Is that a small screen or is that just a, a, a pitch? It is, it is. They very much, as I mentioned, uh, originally when they were formed, they were formed as the Church of Christ. They added of Latter-day Saints in 1835. But, <clears throat> yes. It makes it very much more appealing. Someone could not, and by the way, at those, at that time, they were very much more, these ideas about God that evolved within them came after mostly 1838. So some of their early writings and such didn't support those things either. That came later. Sidney Rigdon and again, um, and uh, Joseph Smith hatched those ideas out, trying to make it again a convenient they wove a very tangled web trying to make it a convenient thinking man's religion and answer all these wonderful questions. Um, where did God come from, for example? Are there more than one God? Um, talk about your question. Okay, Jesus fitting into the name. Um, they do believe in salvation through Jesus Christ. They do believe that his uh, shedding of his blood was very much important for salvation. But salvation, again, does not mean to them what it means to you and I. It means resurrection. And they believe that when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, that it was for everyone, every human being, bad, good, indifferent, non-Mormon, Mormon, to be resurrected. Salvation itself to them is exaltation to Godhood. That is salvation. But you see, you couldn't be resurrected without Jesus and if you can't be resurrected, then you can't call your wife, who you had sealed in the temple, you can't call her up from the grave, you can't go to the celestial kingdom, you can't become a god. So he's very integral in their system of faith. Does that make sense? And if they had it to do over again, I'm sure they'd name it the same thing, even because it is. In fact, if you, if you, if one of the things they like to say is when, when they're attacked is, you know, because people, that know a little bit about them, and, and you hear it in the media, like, they're not Christian. Well, sure we are. We've got the name of Christ in, our, in, in the name of the church. Surely we are Christian. But they have a different Christ altogether. Okay? Well, so Christ is going to free God for our world? Yes. Okay. Well, the earth 
Not for us, not for this realm. No, they any future gods that you know would that come from you know from this particular. I'm not. I'm going to say experiment, but that sounds a little bit. If any that came from this particular iteration, if they attain to godhood, because they're not automatically gods when they get to the celestial kingdom in heaven, they've still got stuff to do. They got to have an awful lot of spiritual babies. And when that, it isn't, in fact, in their mind, it's not until they have had so, and they stated it, this is, you can read it, until they have had so many spirit children that heaven will know, that heaven that they're in, they're part of heaven, the celestial kingdom, will no longer contain them, then they get to go take eternally existent matter, form it into a world, and do their thing. This is exactly what we discussed. Those those babies that are born to them and their spirit wives are in what's called the first estate. They are spiritual. They've got to be faithful to that God. If they are not faithful to that God, then they will not be born into the physical realm, which they must have a physical body to ultimately become gods. It's very important. That's very, a very mixed up thing. <laughs> Brigham Young very strongly believed that. He taught it, but the church itself has distanced itself from that for years now. Don't even bring it up. Um, Let me think about that. The prophet uh, Joseph Fielding Smith taught against it extremely vigorously, which was a revelation. It didn't end up in the Doctrine of Covenants, but it is a, it, his writings are as a revelation. So that was the idea that Adam, that, that we've seen quoted in both of the that Adam is our God, he is our God, and that is not so. Not anymore. Brigham Young believed that Adam was, was Gabriel, Gabriel, and he was our father. He, In fact, he's quoted as saying that you have heard it said that Adam was created from the dust of the earth. And he says, he was created from the dust of the earth, but not the dust of this, this, this earth. Because Adam says, or uh, Brigham Young says, that Adam brought a spirit wife with him to this earth to procreate. And he became our God. He became Elohim. He believed that's the Adam-God theory, but that had all kind of problems with it. So they, within a generation, they, they completely jettisoned that idea. And that was part of what I mentioned to you early on. Very fluid with regard to doctrinal changes because they only have... Well, sure. And, and what, what I picked up here, it doesn't appear that there is much for women as there is for men. <laughs> it's more of a stick than a carrot for them because... For the women, if they are not, if they don't subject themselves to the husband, then they will be relegated to a position of eternal servant. They'll be in the celestial kingdom, but they will not be exalted. Much more of a stick than a carrot. Of course, the uh, the basic nature of women preachers say the same thing about it. They think about the Taliban. Fair enough. All right. So one more passage I mentioned. Again, and I, and I, I love this, this idea because Isaiah quashes it so beautifully. I mean, I'm saying Isaiah, but obviously the Spirit of God 
uh, dealt with everything. We have everything we need. And, and it certainly, none of these crazy views of Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon were in view back here in Isaiah, but the Spirit lets us have these beautiful things that, uh, that get us, give us clear understanding. Uh, 43, Isaiah 43, 10. Again, uh, as to the possibility of other gods. Again, in their mind, in the Jewish mind, there was competition for their affection. They might be other gods, these idols to whom they could give their loyalty. But in order for there to be a competition, there has to be at least two, two parties. There's not two parties. And that's what God's saying here. Uh, before me, the last part of this, before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Now this isn't quite as, as, as much of a hammer in terms of there's no other God, I know not one. But it speaks to the, even the possibility of there being other gods. If there were no gods formed before him, there's no gods formed after him. He is the only God. He knows of no other. It takes out time, possibilities. It takes out distance, realm, everything. There's just no possibility of another true God. There are idols, but there are not any other true gods in the Scriptures. Okay, God has a physical body. Again, his proportions are like our proportions. He is flesh and blood. We are made in his image, literally in his image. <clears throat> There's a God in heaven, Bruce McConkie, in heaven who is infinite and eternal, who has a body of flesh and bones, as tangible as man's, and who is in fact a resurrected, glorified, perfected, and exalted man, and hence the title, Elohim, God the Father, he is an exalted man. Now look over here. Well, I say look over here. I'm going to look over here in the Doctrine and Covenants. Still in here. Verse 22 of section 130. I'm going to read the whole thing. The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also. But the Holy Spirit has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Spirit could not dwell in us. So I have to deal with that. So you see that this is not just, uh, this is actually part of their written scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants. Okay? And uh, I don't make the point explicitly clear, but I think it's important to understand they're not talking about a big, giant, physical God. He is like us. If we, as they've said, if we were to, if we were to meet him and to see him, we would converse with him just like we would with a friend face to face. We would see him as we are seen. All right, for their first proof text on this, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, let us make man, again, we won't go too deep here, but uh, let us make man in our image. So Mormons are going to take that to mean that clearly this means we are made in the image of God. What is an image? Well, it's a likeness. We're made like him. You know, if he is, if we are physical, then we can go backwards and say that he's physical. <clears throat> Again, they're just trying to sway you. They may not hold that this is the main passage that teaches it. Um, but in what sense? Well, let's stick with our, the, the line of argumentation that we've been using, which is mainly we can't understand this passage, which is, is not particularly clear on the subject of whether God has a physical body. Well, let's look at a passage that would. John chapter 4 and verse 24. We can't understand this somewhat ambiguous passage to be in contradiction to this other passage that is particularly clear. 
We know this passage <laughs> very well. Uh, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, so that there is no ambiguity on the subject, look over at Luke chapter 24. Could a spirit have flesh and bones? In Luke chapter 24, Jesus says, whenever he is resurrected, or he has uh, appeared and resurrected and appeared to the, uh, the apostles there. No, well, it's there. I just. Yeah. I thought I marked it. I'm looking right at it. But... Yeah. Right. I thought I had it marked. That's right. So Jesus says. God is spirit. Spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. Therefore, God doesn't have flesh and bones. So whatever this is talking about in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, it's not that he has a physical body of flesh and bones. So what might be a reasonable, we, we need only a reasonable explanation of what it could be. And it is clear uh, from the scriptures that we are made in the likeness of God in what way? Well, as stated here, we're endowed with a soul that will never cease. We have an intellectual capacity to reason. The animals, if you think about the context, the animals were just shown to Adam. And they were paraded before him, and there was no help meet. There was no help suitable found for him. Because none of those had these abilities. Uh, I say that. Am I way off, by the way? I am way off. They were just created. He had not just seen them, but they were created. Uh, among them, certainly, there were no, there, it's going to be pointed out in chapter 2, there was none found like suitable for him. But these animals were different than Adam that were just created. Whenever God create, came to man and created him, he created him in his image in that he had a spirit, in that he had a soul that would never cease to exist. These animals, it's a contrast, these animals didn't have that. They're not created in God's image that way. So it's a spiritual application. Yes, sir? If a gifted likeness is physical likeness, and I wonder what, in what sense the language would not uh, fit. That is a very good, a ring thing has a nose, has eyes, has ears, has mouth, has basically our structure. Uh, or, you know, or is that not in the image of man? Would it then not be in the image of God? So my thinking on that would be that if we're talking about this image, there are lots of animals that match the image of God. If we're talking about a spiritual image, there is no creature that matches that but man. That's right. Well said. Much better than when I was struggling through there. Uh, all right, Genesis chapter 32, verse 30. Now, this is the passage. You remember I asked a good bit about this because uh, it's not a passage uh, that... You know, it's got some, leaves some questions in my mind. Uh, here is when, this is the passage when Jacob uh, was about to meet Esau, and as the night before he actually met him, says that he met a man, uh, verse 24, and a man wrestled with him. We're going to find out pretty quickly that this was at least more than a man. Uh, this man, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, touched the hip socket, uh, socket of his hip, socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. He said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. 
And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Okay, that's obviously the passage they're looking for, that verse 30. Um, so who, who was this? And so first of all, uh, if this is God, would this prove that God has a body of flesh and bones as they assert? So <clears throat> it is by no means clear that this is absolutely God. This could be simply an angel. Uh, at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Then Jacob saw them, and he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of the place Manam. So God, Jacob here, he's referring to the place where he saw the angels as God's camp because they were his representative, his messengers. He could have been simply using the terminology over here accommodatively that in reference to angels, that they were uh, the messengers of God, so he was receiving uh, God's presence uh, by proxy. It could be that it is uh, Jesus Christ. There, you know, if you look over at uh, Joshua chapter 5, I think there's clear evidence there that the man that met Joshua, that had a sword in his hand, Joshua fell down before him, he worshipped him, the, this appearance... This uh, individual said, take off your shoes from your feet, the sandals from your feet, because the place where you stand is holy ground. That does not appear to be an angel. That appears that that is deity. So that could be Christ. So, But here, we don't need to draw either of those conclusions. Uh, the main point I would make about that is just as God appeared uh, to uh, Abraham back in Genesis 18, uh, and also, uh, when, well, and the most obvious case, when Christ came to this earth, did he, as God, have a physical body? Well, clearly he did, a body of flesh and bone. We don't want to become Gnostics and teach he didn't. He had a body of flesh and bone. But the point is, and, and could God then have been here represented in a physical manifestation? Well, certainly he could have been. Uh, but does that mean we've lost our point? Does it mean that God literally has a flesh, body of flesh and bones at this time right now and always does? Well, certainly it does not mean that. Uh, one thing, well, let's just look at some of the other passages. Look over at uh, Exodus chapter 33. This too is a manifestation of God to Moses. Moses asked God, please, uh, this is in the latter verses here, verse 19. Moses asked God to please show me your glory, verse 18. And God says, I will make my goodness pass before you. And I'll proclaim the name of the Lord uh, before you. So here, when God is going to be manifest to make himself manifest to Moses, what does Moses see? What well, first of all, we see that uh, God is going to take him, put him in the cleft of the rock. He is going to cover him with his hand. I think that right there automatically argues that his proportions would at least have to be different. But look back at verse 11. This is a verse, by the way, that they want to use. 
so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Probably the genesis for their idea that, that Brigham Young said that you would speak to him face to face like a friend. But verse 20, I think, holds a big key to it. And it's not the only place this is stated. You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Later in John chapter 1, verse 18, no man has at any time seen the Father. So it's clear that when these types of things happen, they could only be a manifestation of a part of what God chooses at that time to reveal. They are not God himself. Otherwise, we've got a stark contradiction here. So, to say that God at times chooses to make himself manifest in a way that men interpret as a human being, that's perfectly fine. He can do that. It's his creation. To say that that is how he always is is a completely different matter and would fly completely into contradiction with what Jesus said in in, uh, other passages. Uh, I wish I was an apologist like you. I really do. I just, that's the best I can do on short uh, effort. <laughs> well, you do a good job. Uh, all right, so here's another one. And this, this, is, this is a whole line of verses that they use where they're looking for body parts. Okay? It's kind of ridiculous when you think about it. But when God appeared to the Israelites to seal the covenant, uh, the elders that were before him there, Moses and Aaron and the, and the elders, uh, he had a hand, you know. Uh, he had a feet. Let's look over there before I say it wrong. And so the Mormons are going to look at anything like that as showing, verse 10, and there was under his feet, as it were, paved work of sapphire stone. Um, Verse 11, that on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. It seems like a very amateurish argument, and thankfully it is, because uh, it does not Im- imply that God physically has these things, but these are things that uh, they would have seen in the form of a vision, really, or whatever manifestation, again, that God chose to present to them. And I don't know if this is a strong argument, but... If that line of thinking is consistent, then they would have to say that back in chapter 4, 3 and 4 of Exodus, when God appeared to Moses in the form of a burning bush, or called to him out of the burning bush, then if you're going to use that line of logic, God has a body of burning bush. Well, he doesn't have a body of burning bush. It's just that he manifested himself to Moses there in that way, as he is here manifesting himself to them in this way. Um, what else do I have up there? I am, I think, a full... Okay, I went and I went to Exodus 33, which we've already looked at. Okay. Uh, 33.11. Let's keep going on this because we're really out of time and we don't need to get too far behind. Okay, same thing here with Acts chapter 7. Uh, uh, Stephen, as he was being stoned, looked up. Into heaven saw God the Father, and at his right hand he saw Jesus. Um, so <clears throat> that proves then that God has body parts and therefore has a physical body. But uh, it's pretty clear that what, whatever Stephen saw, it was a vision. Because um, the people that were there, if, if the heavens had been physically open and Jesus and God were physically there... He would have saw them, everyone that was there would have seen that. 
Now, I believe that what Stephen saw was exactly what's described. It was God the Father and Jesus in some form that he could understand, a person or personage, um, that he could understand that that's who it was and identify them. But that was a vision. So if we want to use that line of thinking, again, to be consistent, anytime we see a vision like that, whatever form God manifests himself in, we would have to conclude that that's the form of God. And in Revelation chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, we see the glorified Jesus, the burnished uh, feet, the, 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 the body, the whiteness, the, all of that. That would have to mean that that is the body that Jesus has, which they don't believe. They do not believe that that represents the body of Jesus. Revelation chapter 5, whenever it's clearly Jesus who appears to open the seals on the book, what does he appear as? A lamb slain. So, is that does that mean that God, or rather that Jesus, has a body of a slain lamb? Clearly it doesn't. So, uh, the key point in that line of, of argument is, is this a vision? Which I think it clearly is. If it's a vision, then it, we can't take visions of God and say that's the physical body that he has. All right. Uh, same thing here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, the hand of God is evidence of a physical body. You will at least know what passages they use. Again, uh, you may not know the best way to refute them, but you'll have a good, good working knowledge of where they are. Now, the best thing I know to, to refute this particular passage is verse 10, uh, I'm sorry, verse 13, where uh, in the same context it says that, uh, to which of the angels has he ever said, he's quoting Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand, again he said, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Does that mean that Jesus, all of Satan's uh, servants on the earth, or those who would fight against the kingdom of heaven, are literally footstools around out here? Of course it doesn't. This is figurative language to talk about the position that Jesus had of authority that God had granted to him in his right hand, and nothing more. Okay. All right, now this, I think, is a, a good passage to use that they're not going to take you to, but that you probably should take them to uh, if God and if Jesus uh, do have physical bodies uh, at all times. We've already seen some passages that rule that out as a possibility at all times, and that at the essence of God is not physical. <coughs> Verse 7, Philippians 2. But he made himself, this is referring, of course, to Christ, of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. If Jesus was, prior to coming to this earth, in heaven, physically, uh, a physical being, then why did he have to take on the form of man? Why did he have to take on a likeness like ours? Well, of course he didn't. I mean, he wouldn't have, but he did. He humbled himself to do that. All right, I think that's about as far as we'll get tonight. I just wanted to bring these two points up here in First Kings 8.27, uh, when Solomon is dedicating the temple, I believe it is. Yeah. Solomon says, how, you, the heavens and the earth cannot contain you. So how, how much less this temple? It doesn't contain, it's not going to contain you. So that automatically argues their sense of proportions are wrong. Isaiah 6, when he appeared to Isaiah, again a vision, 
but the hem of his garment filled the temple. Well, if God's physical, that's an awful big garment for a guy our size. And that just don't work. That doesn't work out. Okay. Uh, God was once a man. We're not going to go into this tonight. Um, I'll just state it right quick just so you'll have it. Uh, the first principle of the gospel, to know for certain that the character of God, the character of God, and to know that we may converse with him as one man converses with another, and that he was once a man like us, yea, that God himself, the Father of us all, dwelt on an earth, the same as Jesus Christ himself did. Jesus, and this is Joseph Smith teaching that. I apologize that I, it's a lot of passages, uh, so I'm not going to say I'd do better if there were three, but uh, there are a lot of passages. We don't have a lot of time to spend on them. We have got to get through this. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a, uh, the next thing that's pretty interesting is they get into this idea that God did not create the earth from nothing. How do you say that? Ex nihilo? He created it from eternally existent matter, which... Again, is a very Greek idea. It's a very it's a pagan idea. The Elish, Enuma Elish, and and uh, other the Egyptian uh, traditions on this have the same situation. But that is foreign to the scriptures. Uh, we'll cover those tomorrow night. So when Smith thought that the Father itself dwelt on Earth was thinking about that, his mind that, 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 that. And Joseph Smith's mind it was. It was uh, I think, you know, I'm kind of cynical, I guess, in a way when I read these things. I, I think, you know, you're Brigham Young. What do you do? Joseph Smith just had all this stuff, this crazy stuff from plural marriages to God. And, you know, he's a, he was a man. And all. Well, what do you come up with? <laughs> you've got 30 years to be the, you got 30 years to be the president and the prophet, the seer, and the revelator. Well, what are you going to reveal? So, huh, I'll, that's, that's pretty good. I'll come up with that one. Because that's the only idea I have. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. How did they explain the creative Eve out of rib that, you know, if they get the... I think Brigham Young would argue that just as Adam was, you know, you weren't here, but Brigham Young said Adam was created in the dust of an earth, but not this earth. He came here with his spirit wife. Um, he would, I guess, claim that he came here after she, that had happened on a different planet. That was his main point on that. But is uh, any other planet ever referred to as earth? Kalab is the, in the, uh, Pearl of Great Price. I mean, this stuff sounds like sci-fi channel stuff, but I'm telling you the truth. It's, it's K-O-L-O-B is where God is from. K-O-L-O-B. But as I said, this Joseph Smith's mother, Lucy Mack, um, she stated from an early age in her biography that this boy was very creative. He was very, he was always coming up with stories and could elaborate. In fact, he even states that he came up with elaborate stories of the ancient inhabitants of this country and described their battles in great detail. So the man didn't, he didn't struggle for ideas. No. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure.
But you're right. I think what Joseph Smith said, because, and I, again, I'm just, there's evidence, but I hate to ascribe to somebody's motives because you don't always know what their motive. They may have just been delusional. Who knows? But I think the evidence is when you look at the, the money hunting and all that, as he said, which what's the best, who's, what book does everybody have? They've got a Bible. I'm going to make me 5,000 of them and sell them. The people, if they believe it's the Bible, they're going to buy it all over the world. And he used to start out and start a church and he was going to sell books. It wasn't until 1830. If you look at it, I think it was a progression of, okay, here's a real good idea. I'll, I, can, I can write. I can come up with anything. I'll take some Bible verses, sprinkle it in. I'll take what I've learned from Solomon Spalding or from Ethan uh, Adams, not Adams, not Ethan Adams. Uh, anyway, the fellow that wrote a uh, view of the Hebrews. I'll take some of that, sprinkle it in, I'll sell these. Then the idea came, hey, these people believe this. He was pretty good. I mean, the guy was persuasive. He could talk you out of money to, to, to go big for, for, in fact, he worked in 1827 for a man in Pennsylvania, Harmony, Pennsylvania, for the very explicit purpose of going to find money, find treasure buried, because he had the ability to find that stuff. And he's having trouble convincing people of things. Once he saw that, hey, there's a potential beyond just making some money here, I've got a following. And I think when, when he got with Sidney Rigdon in Ohio, that's when the, and Sidney Rigdon was a very smart fella. It took off. He knew the Bible pretty well. Now, why? I don't know how, how to explain his unscrupulousness, but uh, and then you had Parley Pratt and Orson Pratt, which well, you, we saw some of their quotes here. They really were pretty pretty sharp people, probably more so than uh, Sidney Rigdon a little bit. But he was. They were very smart. Well, he was a handsome man. He was very charismatic. I mean, if you read things about him, he could—he was very persuasive. And you'd have to be to sell this stuff. <laughs> the book called No Man Knows My History. So, have you ever read that one? I have not read that one, but I know of it. Exposed a lot of shenanigans. Yeah, it was. Uh, there, it, that is one thing. Is there's such a prolific amount of work, or there's such a voluminous amount of work out there refuting Mormonism and its early claims that it's just uh, amazing that anybody has, you know, would believe it. And then let me just say this, by the way, when I left Mormonism, I left it three years before I became a Christian. What what got me out of Mormonism? Because I can distinctly remember telling my friends, you know, as an adult, you know, 18 years old trying to persuade them that the Book of Mormon had the story of the American Indians in it. And they were intrigued. It, that's not a hard, you know, at that time it wasn't nearly as widely known as it is now. That That's just not the case. So, but that, And that was very, I believe that with all my heart. I believe that. I didn't, now you've got to understand I didn't know of these things. I didn't know Joseph Smith taught these things. And I really didn't know much about these things because the church I belonged to didn't teach them either. But, when, what got me out of Mormonism, I think, I thank the Lord, T-H-A-N-K, thank the Lord for this, but my mom gave me a book that had all their scriptures bound in it. And for a period of time, they had, they took some of the revelations that had been in the Doctrine and Covenants, 
that they didn't need in there. The RLDS, remember, they didn't believe in baptism for the dead. Well, some of that stuff was still in there. Well, just before, uh, I would say about 1976, they moved that stuff to the appendix. And they had a little explanation of why they did that, basically saying, this is not scripture, this is not from God. The first words in that, it was section 70, and I'm reading that, and I'm you know, finally made my way back to the back, and I'm reading that, and it says, barely, barely, thus saith the Lord. That's the first verse. That shook me. That, for the first time, it made my mind go, whoop. <laughs> that, that just don't work. How can they say the two pages before that that's, that this is all the Word of God, and that reads the same way as all of that? So I read through there, and, you know, I see why they took this out of That don't sound like the God. I don't know what. But then I go back and look at This is barely, barely thus says the Lord. So at that point, I'm like, this can't be right. This just can't be right. So I went to a Baptist church at that point. And that's when my mom told me I was the son of perdition. And that means instead of just being not a good Mormon and not, you know, having to go into the celestial kingdom, not to become a god for them, but just the highest level of heaven to be with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Terrestrial, just the Holy Father, just the Son. But it meant that I was going to a lake of fire. Well, can I ask you something? Uh, you might help me understand what's the future for me. One time I made a woman out so mad that he stood up and draped himself in all the dignity, held his hand up, said, I hear God assigned you to uh, eternal perdition or something. Okay, perdition. Well, he made you mean you and have the same faith. I told them they don't have that faith because... They'll probably, at the worst, you'll go to the celestial kingdom, which, as they have said, is beyond imagination and how wonderful it is. Ministering angels can go there. And some of these servants you were talking about earlier, they can go there. Some of these, these not-so-good Mormons, the ones that didn't get all this, they can go help them. <laughs> they can go be servants there. <laughs> but, but you and I, see, we're, we're consigned, we're, we don't make the celestial at all. We're consigned to outer darkness, to There's Satan, the angels, and the, and the sons of perdition. So I don't know why he would do that to you, though, because... Really, because a son of perdition, I, maybe that's something the LDS teaches that I just have picked up on. The You're going... Well, that's right, because, I, and I guess they do, they probably use that to, because everything's very convenient. I mean, if you ask me, whatever argument you need, you can produce it. But, but he did it in a very official way. Wow. It was, uh, he, he was really doing this in an official way, about you know, like the curse or something. Wow. See, because when my mom told me that I was, when I told her I was not going to, I didn't believe this anymore, and that I was going to the Baptist church, she, she welled up with tears and says, but, but that means you are a son of perdition. Because that's what the, the scripture teaches. If you believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God and Joseph Smith to be a prophet of God, sent from God in their words, and then you turn away from that, then you are a son of perdition. But evidently they use it too to mean, if I pronounce you, you you're one of these, then you're a servant of the devil, like the angels, the Man, that whole thing, and we'll, if we get through this, uh, and, and please, I'll talk all night, but the, the, uh, there was a war in heaven. And see, this is where the whole, their salvation thing just quits making any sense at all to me. 
there was a war in heaven, okay? A third of the angels, or a third of those uh, spirit children of God and his spirit, and his, I'm sorry, spirit children, because they are spirit at that point in the first estate, born to a fleshly God and his wife, those one-third were not loyal to, to him in that battle. And so they became Satan. Satan was the second son of, Jesus, of uh, God the Father. Jesus was the first. Satan wanted to be the one who brought salvation. His form of salvation was, I'm going to make him do it. And that's why he was rejected for that. So anyway, he comes drums up the battle. They become the fallen angels the third. Well, if you follow that all the way through, that's doomed to happen to the next God. If you, and the, the whole, because what they say is that in the other earths, there will be a plan of redemption. That if you go on to become a God, one of your spirit children will have to be the savior of that world so that they can be resurrected. So you have to have evil. So you have to have Satan. So you have to have the war. If you work it backwards, it's doomed to happen every time. So, well, it's, I'll show you a chart that actually helps you on that later on.